Well, I think it goes without saying that I enjoy this episode, but I enjoyed it this time through a lot more than I actually thought I would. A lot of that has to do with the Klingon politics on display, but we'll cover that in a minute. What I want to talk about first is how they apparently... How do I put this? I haven't decided how much I disagree with these decisions yet, but there's a lot of decisions made in Season 3 that are just, that just kind of make me go, huh? One of these is they decided to write Keiko out of the show in order to make sure that Bashir and O'Brien can have a closer friendship. Now, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm insane or something, but that just sounds really weird to me. Like, you don't need to write someone out of the show to develop another friendship. It's just, really? Uh, there'll be another decision in the future, similar to this. We'll, we'll get to it. Um, this is... <laughs> I know this is going to sound weird, but this is the t time when the... Okay, rewind. If you remember, I mentioned several episodes ago the idea that the writers had finally gotten on board with the idea that Dukat was more of a fleshed-out person than a pure evil. <laughs> you know, he wasn't stupid evil, as he was originally intended. But the writers didn't get on board with that until afterwards, because the actor and the directors had already been portraying it that way. Same thing's happening here. The writers have basically picked up on the relationship and friendship between Bashir and O'Brien and the two, the good chemistry and dynamic between the two characters, or excuse me, actors. And now the writers are deliberately moving in that direction. I've said it before and I say it again. I do like Deep Space Nine. I like Deep Space Nine a lot, but I can't really bullet point why. Because it seems to be a coincidence in almost every respect. None of this is really planned out. None of this really happens because of some grand design or some architecture or whatever. And despite the fact that the show arguably has a mainliner, it acts like it doesn't because they keep kind of making things up as they go and changing their mi minds in mid-stride. It's just kind of a weird set of circumstances. But anyways, so let's talk about just a really quick thing. O'Brien notices that Keiko is upset, and so he goes out of his way to set up this whole special fancy dinner, and she's like, well, what's all this? And he's like, oh, you're early. You're five minutes early. I'm not even done yet. Gosh, what is this? Well, this is the I'm married to my the, the best woman in the whole galaxy day, or whatever the heck he calls it. I have not much else to add to this scene other than the fact that it's nice to see that you know, relationship between the two again. Once again, showcasing why I like the O'Brien and Keiko relationship. O'Brien does legitimately care about his wife, is more than capable of picking up on signs, and tries to deal with the situation. And yet he is not perfect, because he does not understand the core problem that is facing Keiko, or really knows how to deal with that, at least at first. And I love that, because it is Bashir who is the one who actually has to, to hit the nail on the head with this. Before I move on to that, though, I want to just add an aside thing here. Earlier, he goes to talk to Cisco, man-to-man, -man, so to speak. And Dax is like, well, this is when we leave. And Kira's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And just sits there and keeps reading. And and then Cisco's like, no, you're getting out of this room so I can talk with him privately. And she's like, okay, whatever. And the whole time she acts like it's this some weird thing. What I want to know is... What are Bajoran relationships like? That they're totally cool with things not being like that? Like, I, I don't mean that as an insult or a derogatory. Rather, I find myself wondering if there really is some more, uh, let's call it openness, when it comes to Bajoran relationships and discussing deep, personal, private things out in the open, because why not, right? I'm, I must say, though, 
it wouldn't surprise me too much if that really is a thing, since being open and honest with each other is kind of a mandatory aspect of Bajoran culture in the wake of the occupation, so that might actually be a legitimate thing. Just food for thought. Anyways, getting back to it. So he reaches out to Cisco and he's like, hey, I want to build an arboretum. And Cisco's like, yeah, we got an empty bay. We could turn into an arboretum. And I do very much like this because this is, this is O'Brien. He cares. He loves. He tries, but he's, he's trying to fix the wrong problem, basically. And I think, I know this sounds so strange, but I think that's why I like it. Because if he just perfectly, instantly knew what the problem was, that would be a little less realistic. And what I like most about the Keiko and O'Brien relationship is that it is realistic. Bashir is the one who, getting back to what I was saying, finally lays it out for him. And I love the analogy he uses. If you had to go tinker with tricorders and circuit chips and whatever just on the side, would you be satisfied? No, of course not, because that's your career. You want to actually pursue your career. Now, this is even more fascinating in Star Trek. This applies in real life, too. But this is more fascinating in Star Trek because money, or lack thereof. Now, yes, I know there is money and blah, 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 but my point is these are two Federation citizens. They basically have the ability to do whatever the hell they really want to. But they're both very passionate about pursuing their careers. And I point that out because this is something I've talked about before when it comes to Star Trek. Now, this usually comes up more on TNG, but I've mentioned this in Voyager. I've mentioned this here in T-Space 9 as well. If you have a, a thing you're pursuing, let's just use the word career, but it doesn't have to apply to, like, a Starfleet or a job or whatever. If you have this thing you're pursuing in Star Trek and you're a member of the Federation, the reason you're pursuing that is because it is something you're passionate in, because it is something you're ambitious in, because it is something you actually want to do. You want to be a Creole chef. You want to be a writer. You want to be a starship captain. You want to be a science officer, etc., etc., and every single one of those examples, I could point to an individual character and say, they pursued that. They wanted that. They were driven to that. And I love that because I've noticed that that's very true in real life. Not everyone, unfortunately, gets the chance to really find out what they're really passionate about. They don't have the resources or the encouragement or the freedom to be able to find out this, this is what I am driven to do. And I have seen people who are driven about spreadsheets or economics or history, or mechanics, or racing, or dancing, or singing, or just... I've seen a huge, huge variety of these kind of career passions in my life. And precious few of these people really get a chance to pursue them. At the end of the day, one of the things... I know this sounds so stupid, but one of the things I like most about the Federation is that ideal of being able to pursue something you are legitimately passionate in because it's what you want to pursue, rather than, well, I have to work at this job because I have to work at this job, right? Now, there's a degree of unrealism to that, and I know that and acknowledge that, but it is still an ideal that's a nice thought. Thus bringing it back to Keiko and O'Brien. I mean, picture for a moment if there's something... If you know what it is that you are driven and passionate about, something you would love to do as a career, regardless of money, just something that you want to pursue. And think about you being forced to turn that into just a hobby on the side every now and again, just a side thing you can do periodically. Wouldn't that bother you? Wouldn't that get to you after a while? In fact, there's a very good chance that, given these circumstances, Keiko would... 
well, let's just say this would be bad, slowly developing resentment and bitterness and probably a good degree of giving up because she has basically given up her career in exchange for being, you know, a good wife. Now, it's worth noting this would apply regardless of gender, so let's not get into that, okay? Her entire point is not, I must be a good woman. It is that I made a promise to this family. That is her whole point. So gender has nothing to do with this. I just want to make that very clear. I also have to admit that I very much like the fact that O'Brien then, very quietly but very effectively, goes out of his way and uses his resources and reaches into it and finds something that is difficult and important and significant and says, hey, I found you this thing. He does his research is what I'm trying to say. He doesn't just say, it would be easy for a person in a relationship to say, oh, well, you really are passionate about mud farming. Just bear with me. You should go find mud farming. That's easy to do. What is more difficult to do is to have acknowledged and taken into account the long-term consequences of that and having done your prep work in advance and saying, so there's this mud farm. It's down in South Bobville. And they're actually doing this whole thing where they're using mud they've never actually used before. In fact, this is mud that's being churned up from some civilization that was buried there under a volcano, under a lot of volcanic uh, magma and pumice years and years and years ago, thousands of years ago. And they're going to churn this up and turn this into this brand new mud farm. Would you be interested? In, you know, in other words, <laughs> that's, a, that's a ridiculous analogy, but I try to use made-up analogies to avoid uh, issues. In other words, he put his work into it and bothered and tried and thus reaches out to her and doesn't just say, go be a botanist. He says, I found you a really awesome botanist job where you can be a damned good botanist. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, I don't actually have much else to say about that, the B plot. So let's move over to the A plot. Quark... <laughs> Quirk is obviously using this to increase business, and that's a duh. He is a very practical person. How much do you think Quirk was interested in just having that respect? Now, he himself says, you know, it's, you know having the respect is awesome. But how much do you think, it, like, like, what percent do you think it is between profit and respect? Rom himself has a line pretty much right at the end of the episode, you can't buy respect. And that's true. In fact, it's one of the underlying core themes of the episode, uh, or at least the A-plot of the episode. It doesn't really touch on the B-plot at all. There's no thematic connection between the A-plot and the B-plot, at least not that I could see it, unless you count the extremely tenuous connection of mariage. But anywho. <clears throat> so, de Gore maneuvers Quark, obviously, overtly, and then Quark is kidnapped by Grilka. Nobody notices Someone just beamed off the station, and they managed to get to Kronos, and nobody notices? <sighs> Come on, Odo. <laughs> I have a note here. It just says, I love Klingon politics. And I do. I really do. I have not yet talked about Klingon politics in full. There are at least three episodes of TNG where Klingon politics are very much on display in a good way. Um... And the good kind of politics. We've been talking about terminology lately and haven't really come up with a good term. We'll call it political intrigue for the time being for good politics. You know, interesting politics uh, as far as fiction goes and whatnot. So I love Klingon politics. I love the idea of utilizing procedure and, and tradition in order to present a 
farce of a house that is slowly degenerating until it gets to the point where he has basically a line on it, L-E-I-N, or a lane if you prefer, but it's line, a line on it, and it says, hey, I cl-, and then he finally sees that the guy dies, or arranged his death, given the circumstances, I think he arranged it, and ha now that that's done, <clears throat> now all I have to do is claim the house. There's no unusual circumstances, we're all good. Grilka, of course, she understands the traditions. One of the things that's been mentioned and will be mentioned in the future is that women have a very strong role in Klingon politics. While they are not allowed to be chancellor, while they're not allowed to have certain position and other stuff like that, the, the women are, let's call it the, the power of the houses directly. The actual running and structure and management of the houses is under the women. Now, I'm not saying that it's a good thing to have that kind of a massive divide between responsibilities and, and uh, respect between males and females, but whatever. I'm just pointing it out because Grilka, while she is making this up by the seat of her pants, nevertheless knows enough about Klingon politics in order to say, aha, I do have a set set of circumstances that ensures that my house continues under Quark. Now, the problem is, as Quark himself will later point out, that's just a band-aid. Because for all her expert uh, manipulation of Klingon... I shouldn't say that. That's, that's a really bad term. For all of her knowledge of Klingon politics and manipulation, she does not know the full scope of the situation and has not allowed herself to accept the kind of things that would be necessary to resolve the situation. She is, in short, no Gowron, who is, as always, the master of Klingon politics. House of Quirk, Quark. There we go. <laughs> Which brings me to an interesting point. One of the things I've noticed about Quark is that he is really good at understanding other people's cultures. He's a people person. I've mentioned this before. And the way he basically slides right into Klingon infrastructure, culturally and politically, is actually quite impressive. But again, doesn't surprise me. It just pleases me, if that makes any sense. Because I, I, he strikes me as the kind of person who would know how the Klingon eh, way is and would be able to use it to his own ends. This, the, this is probably best demonstrated by a scene that I bet most of you didn't even notice. And I'm going to point it out because it's brilliant in its subtlety. Quark basically is willing to talk back to Grilka. Now, <laughs> when she's not literally holding a knife at his throat... He is willing to stand up for himself. Cork is basically, let's call him more brave than he puts on. While if he is threatened to, to life-threatening things, he will act like a coward. But he is still a brave person. I know that's a strange thing to comment on because too often in fiction, and especially in Hollywood, anyone who is not heroically stoic is perceived as a coward and a negative light. But what Quark is is a more dynamic, more, eh, let's call it nuanced, not dynamic, a more nuanced version of that kind of thing. He is someone who is willing to stand his ground and is willing to fight back, just in his own way and in his own terms. But I'll get more into that later. So he talks back to Grilka, and, and basically it gets to the point where he says, I need to be able to interact with your, I need to interact with your filthy ledgers. Right? I need to see all that stuff. And she flat out turns around and starts spitting and ranting and raising her voice. We do not do things that way. That is not done. We do not dirty ourselves with filthy ledgers. And then he doesn't give an inch. 
Instead, what he does is he stands his ground and says, yes, well, you are already screwed and I need to see this, so let me see your filthy ledgers. And then she acquiesces without hesitation. That is Klingon right there. That is the very core essence of Klingon culture in that one interaction. A Klingon, I've talked about this a little bit before. It's probably one of the most fascinating things about Klingon culture to me. A Klingon, culturally speaking, by the way they're raised and by the way they, they function as a society, will challenge you with something. Doesn't matter if they care about it. Doesn't matter if they believe it. A Klingon will even go so far as to lie in challenging you with something. Because the point is not whether or not you agree with A or B. The point is how you react to the challenge. Challenges and reactions to challenges is the core of Klingon culture. And thus, she says all this stuff because this is all beneath me. Which is very Klingon. It establishes her position as a stalwart, heroic, honorable Klingon warrior. A woman, but you know... Uh, householder, there's actually a term, I can't remember right now, later Martok mentions it when he says, you know, the women are the such and such, which is like the, the leaders of the house. But anyways, you know, she's an honorable such and such. But then when, she, when he stands his ground and reacts to her challenge appropriately, she's immediately capitulant because he has now proven, she is not submitting to him. He has proven himself to her and thus she allows him to have what he wants. Make sense? This happens all the time in Klingon culture, and it is one of, it's one of the things that is the least talked about aspects of Klingon culture, which is why I'm talking so much about it. We'll be bringing this up in TNG as well, of course. In fact, this will be very important when we get to uh, Redemption in Season 4 of TNG. So, he stands up to Grogu. He stands up to the council, too. That's another nice little note there. And there's a nice comedy scene where he's discussing the ledger. And as you can see, and he goes over all of his evidence. Actually, I want to get back to that really quick. Because the scene with him and her and her thigh made me laugh quite a bit. Apparently, it made a lot of people laugh. And they had to do that scene more than once because people kept cracking up over it. Anyways. So... <clears throat> Oh, by the way, I love the actress who played Groka. I, I need to say that. Her name was Mary something. I don't remember the whole name. Please forgive me. She'll actually be back later. And she does a great job of her. If anything, I wish we had more of her. I really do. Um, she only has a single cameo in Star Trek Online. And God, more, more. Anyways. <laughs> I love the bit where he's going over the ledgers and discussing it. And Garon's like, enough, enough. This Ferengi has given you a challenge. Now, I'm going to pause my... Uh, re-enunciation of events, because what matters here is not proof. Did you notice that? Proof does not matter. Not really to Klingon politics. It can matter, but only as a basis for other interactions. Even despite the fact that they have demonstrable proof, actual, factual, provable proof of the fact that, uh, what's his name again? <laughs> I wrote it down. Uh, de Gore has actually been doing this whole mock, you know, manipulation, financial bullcrap in the background. Despite all that, they don't care. And admittedly, some of them probably don't understand it. I, I think and the only person in that room who probably could keep up at all is Gowron, because, let's face it, he's the best Klingon politician we've ever had, and probably ever will. Anyways, so, you know, enough. He boils it down to the core facts. This, this Ferengi, this leader of his house, of the House of Quark, has challenged you, has said that you have been acting in a dishonorable fashion. How do you react? And the guy's like, oh, I challenge him in return! Because that's how you do things in Klingon. 
Now, my the only thing I don't like about this episode is when Quark and Rom go to run. Don't do that. Don't do that kind of fake out. It's cheap. I don't like that in fiction in general, especially not in short television where it's like, oh, come on, we know he's going to be back. Come on. Anyway, so they come back. And Quark does one of the most brilliant things he could. Because here's the thing about Klingon fake honor. Klingon fake honor, I'm going to try to use that term as clearly as I can, is a separate thing from Klingon honor. Klingon honor is about doing the right thing at the right time. Klingon fake honor is about acting according to cultural norms and proving it. Fake honor is all about appearances and how others perceive you. You know, a Klingon will have tremendous honor and be well-venerated, even if they're the slimiest, most manipulative, dishonorable, backstabbing person alive, if they get away with it. If no one knows, if no one brings that to light, or no one challenges them on that, then they are perceived as someone with great honor. That is to say, fake honor. Make sense? Fake honor is basically the currency of Klingon politics. And I've been using that term for many, many years. I've heard some people use uh, different terms and terminology. I'm going to stick with mine because I'm weird like that. But fake honor. Let me give you two examples of fake honor just really quick here. So, and I call it fake honor because, I mean, it is separate from what we as a real-life human society would call being honorable. Uh, hence the terminology. But Okay, so fake honor. If you are before a weakened, unarmed, surrendered, and helpless opponent and are willing to kill that opponent, especially in public, as a part of a challenge, that is not acceptable. That is not fake honorable. I thought that sounds weird the way I'm saying that. Because all you're doing is cutting down someone who is not worthy of your fight. There's no challenge. There's no pushback. You're just chopping down a leaf that doesn't mean anything. And the mere fact that you're willing to do so ousts you as someone who is dishonorable. By contrast, if you are willing to lay down your life, to stand in the face of death, and accept death in the pursuit of something that you believe to be a worthy cause, that is massively honorable. The whole phrase, it is a good day to die, isn't just a damn slogan. It's all about this concept. As will be said later, Klingons do have a fairly significant love affair with death and a lot of fascination with death. And being willing to face death so openly is one of the most honorable, fake honorable, things in Klingon culture. And thus you can understand how beautiful the final scene, well not the final scene, but the second, the penultimate scene is when Cork stands up to, to uh, I've heard of it, to Gore in the most honorable way possible. He completely outmatches him and outmaneuvers him. And what's funny is if you pay attention to the scene, especially on review, you'll notice everyone's watching to see Degore say, I will not kill you, it's not honorable, and, and cast aside his weapon. Like that, you could just see it on everyone else's faces. That's what they're expecting, especially Gowron. Gowron then has to physically intercede when he goes to attack. It's like, what are you doing? I, I didn't want to believe all those thoughts about you, but this action ousts you as someone who is dishonorable. So dishonorable, in fact, that they discommendate him on the spot. It's a brilliant scene, brilliantly constructed.
It's a great scene for Quark, and it is one of my favorite aspects of bravery. Too often, some people think that being brave means not being afraid, but that's not actually true. Being brave means being afraid and not letting it stop you. And that's exactly what Quark does here. He shows tremendous bravery, accumulates a great deal of fake honor in the process, and of course has the gratitude of Grilka, which will pay dividends in the future and will continue to be a relationship even into SDO's era. That's awesome! It's brilliantly constructed, it is very Klingon, it is very Quark, some great performances, it's great to see Gowron again. It was so natural to just see him segue over to DS9. Gowron, Gowron will be Gowron for like 10 years, which is kind of impressive when you think about it. Um, and the whole thing's wonderful. I really, really love this episode. Um, oh, one last quick aside, I'm sorry, I actually forgot about it, but I'm looking at my notes here. When Quark comes back in, <laughs> he's like, I am Quark, son of Kelgar or whatever. And I fight you, Degor, son of whatever. Now, it's obviously because Quark never learned his, son, his father's name. But funnily enough, in Klingon culture, that's a massive insult. To not even remember the name of your opponent's father. That's just, whoa! I love that. Everyone reacts to it, too. They're like, hmm. Great episode. Loved it. Hope to see you next time, guys.